Well, hi, Christchurch. Good morning. How are you? It is uh, such a privilege to get to be here with you this morning. I'm so glad you mentioned the camp because I, I was remembering, I think this was 16 years ago. I think it was my firstborn son speaking at this camp. And the youth pastor here at the time had set it up as like a theater in the round. And I was really pregnant. Like my son is 16, just turned 16. That tells you how pregnant that I was. And so I'm very pregnant and having to speak like this. And I just remember feeling so dizzy and so nauseous and not really enjoying it. But my son was born just a few days later. And so I feel like I owe you my firstborn son, Christ Church. Like if it was a biblical ancient times, he would be yours. So thank you for that. But I also, I said this in first service, and I, I mean it sincerely. That was 16 years ago. And I know that 16 years ago is sort of a blip on the screen of the life of Christ Church, that you have been a faithful sort of staple in the community, also in Butterfield, also even online for a long time. And... I want to pause and bear witness to that and honor that because I think in this day and age, the staying power of a church is remarkable. God is doing tremendous things here. Yeah. And I know that you're not just a building too. Like I know you've, you've done things, you've given generously to Ukraine. I know that you've raised funds for disaster relief in Kentucky. I know that you've spent the summer pouring into the next generation. I know all of these incredible ministries are launching. I know that you're passionate about justice. I know you're passionate about the gospel and bearing witness to the gospel wherever God has placed you. And so, again, it it is truly my honor and my privilege to be here with you. So I grew up in the South. I have a very Southern father, typical Southern father, which means that he loves football and he loves giving advice. And uh, one of the pieces of advice that my dad often gave us growing up was something called Lombardi time, which if you're a Bears fan, I'm sorry to bring up Coach Lombardi as the coach of the Packers, but we grew up on Lombardi time. And Vince Lombardi would say to his players, his uh, employees, his staff, that if you are not 10 minutes early, you are late, right? If you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. And so my dad drilled Lombardi time into us growing up. We were 10 minutes early to school. We were, no one else was there, but we were there. We were 10 minutes early to birthday parties, which no one really liked, but you know, that was our family. We were 10 minutes early to work. We were 10 minutes early to job interviews. Like my first day of class in college, my dad's calling me like, you better be on Lombardi time. Like we were drilled in, like Lombardi time was drilled into us. And part of that is because timeliness matters to us in the West, right? In the American West, like, like we value time. Experts call us a monochronic society because we go from timed event to timed event, and we don't usually, like, allow a lot of leeway in between. Now, other societies are more polychronic. You might go from meal to a conversation to a circumstance to another meal, to another conversation, but that's not us. Like I know, for instance, this morning, that if I start going a little bit long, you're gonna get kinda itchy, and you're gonna stop making eye contact with me to let me know like I need to wrap up, because timeliness matters to us, it's a value to us. 
Now, some of you in this room are not very punctual, and I know that. I'm married to a man who's not very punctual. How many of you in this room, like, you're the punctual one? Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little secret, those of you who are not punctual and not efficient. Those of us who operate on Lombardi time, we're judging you. <laughs> we think we're better than you. We real, I mean, and really, like, we think, oh, they can't get their act together. They're lazy. We think, um, they don't value me. They don't respect me. Like, we think a lot of really intense things about your lack of timeliness. And some of you, I see you're kind of like looking over at your person right now. Don't do that. <laughs> it's not right to be judgy about timeliness. It's sinful, but we are. We like, timeliness matters to us. And even for those of us who may not be as punctual as others, those of us who don't operate on Lombardi time, our timeliness is a good thing, right? We get, we get a lot done. We're very productive. But it can create a problem for us spiritually. Because what do we do when God doesn't operate on our timelines? What do we do when God does not answer prayers by the deadline that we've set for him? No, I think none of us would say that. Like, we, we all sort of know the moment that we begin expecting God to operate on our timelines is the moment we've stopped worshiping him as God. And yet still, it's very human to wonder, God, why aren't you moving as quickly as I need you to move right now? God, this thing that I have been praying about for so long, why aren't you answering? God, this emotional pain I've been in, this physical pain I've been in, this spiritual drought that I have been in, why aren't you showing up here, God? Why is it taking so long? What are you doing? God, the, the stuff my kids are dealing with right now, why aren't you rescuing them? Why aren't you calling them to yourself? The, the state of the world right now, the state of certain people groups right now, why aren't you showing up, God, with your justice and your new creation? Like, what, God, what are you doing? It's a difficult place for us to be as Christians or as people who are thinking about who God might be. It's difficult for us when God does not seem to be doing things the way that we think God should be doing things or when we think God should be doing things. This morning we're actually going to look at a passage of scripture from the book of Lamentations chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles or your phone apps, I'd love for you to open there, Lamentations chapter 3. Otherwise it'll be on the screen for you. But Lamentations, aptly named, is a lament. And if you aren't familiar with laments in scripture, we're going to dive through a pattern of lament this morning. But laments are known biblically as impolite pleas or impolite prayers. And Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Lamentations, is known throughout scripture as the weeping prophet. His people are suffering deeply and he is expressing that same sentiment to God. God, why aren't you doing what I thought you would do by now? Why aren't you being the God that I thought you were? God, where are you? When are you going to show up? Lamentations chapter 3, we'll start with verse 1. We'll kind of spend some time going through Lamentations 3 this morning. Jeremiah begins by, the, by saying this. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. It's not something we usually say about God, right? We say, Jesus is light in the darkness. 
Jeremiah is saying something else. He made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Verse 4, he has made my skin and flesh grow old and has broken my bones. Again, we think of Isaiah saying, you know, he's, he's uh, restored my youth. I'm soaring on wings like eagles. This is sort of the opposite here. Verse 5, he's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out a cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. The psalmist says he has made my paths straight. Jeremiah is saying something else. He's made my paths crooked. I thought life would be going this way, but instead it seems to be going this way, and I don't know what to do. And for any of us, when there's that gap, right, we thought it would be going this way, but it's actually going this way, we often fill in that gap with things like avoidance or pretending. We self-soothe with our addiction. We, uh, you know, watch too much Netflix. But interestingly, we are invited by God to fill in that gap with this practice of lament. But if timeliness matters to us in the West, the other thing that matters to us is the mountaintop experience, right? The victory story. We like to take our pain and our heartache and we like to wrap it up in a pretty little package and we like to say something inspirational on social media about it. We don't like to dwell in the valley or even admit that we're in the valley. I have a friend from Zambia. We watched the new kind of reboot of the Rocky movie together recently and he was like, you Americans, you don't long suffer for more than 30 minutes. <laughs> He's right. We don't like to admit that we're hurting. Did you know that there are more lament songs in the Bible than there are praise songs? I think that's really interesting. Because our Bibles are filled with these impolite pleas, these heartbreaking words directed at God, often blaming God. And yet for some reason in our discipleship, we have just not been given permission to speak to God like this. In... Um, 2015, my husband Kevin and I walked through one of the most difficult seasons we have ever been through. The same week that we were opening the doors to our brand new church plant that Sue Ann mentioned, Renewal Church, was the very same week that my first book was coming out. Right in the middle of that week, I woke up inexplicably unable to walk. Could put no pressure on my legs whatsoever. Kevin was actually carrying me around the house. Now, at the time, I was a runner, and so I thought maybe it was just some type of running injury, but soon realized that something was really wrong. I was eventually hospitalized, diagnosed with a disease that impacts my joints. I'm clearly in a different season now, and I praise God for that. But there was about a year where I just laid on the couch. There was about a year where I was not the mom or the wife or the friend or the minister that I thought God had called me to be. I thought life was going to go this way, but life was going that way. The other thing that happened in that season is we, we began to realize our youngest son, Nolan, was having some developmental issues physically. Something was going on. He ended up having to have spinal cord surgery, stay at Lurie Children's for about a week, and then lay flat on his back for two months. A six-month-old. 
that we're having to keep flat on his back all while I'm not feeling well. He's in an incredible season now too. He's doing awesome. But on top of that, probably the culmination of all of this, my cousin Cameron, who was like a brother to me, like an uncle to my kids, Cameron was snowshoe hiking in Crater Lake National Park, Oregon. He stepped out onto a snow cornice. He took a picture. He sent it to me. I still have it on my phone. And then Cameron plummeted to his death. It has been over seven years, and the park rangers there still have not found Cameron's body. What do you do in a season like that? Right? God's word says you'll keep my feet from slipping, but God did not keep Cameron's feet from slipping. And it's not always these massive tragedies, but it certainly can be that sense of like, God, you are not doing what I thought you should do. God, where are you? And I think many of us don't realize that in those deep, dark seasons, we actually have permission to speak to God like Jeremiah did in lament. Um, you know, if I were to tell you that my husband and I, Kevin, we've been married for 21 years. If I were to stand here and tell you in 21 years of marriage, we've never fought. We've never had a conflict. It has been rainbows and heart emojis and love constantly. Those of you who are married or who have just watched a marriage, you would think, A, she's a liar, or B, well, that's a shallow relationship, right? It is preposterous of us to assume that if we want a deep relationship with God, that God only wants praise and adoration from us. God wants that, and God deserves that, but God also wants our unfettered, raw laments because God wants true intimacy with us. God wants a marriage with us. And so we are invited biblically to pour out our hearts as ugly and as raw as they are to God without fear that he's going to reject us. In fact, God would rather that we run to him with our anger and our pain and our doubt and our frustration than walk away from him altogether. God wants our laments because he wants us. But a lot of times we don't even know what that means. How do you begin lament? Like what do you actually do? And Jeremiah here in Lamentations has given us a beautiful pathway, kind of a practical handhold in our own seasons of lament. So back to Lamentations. Jeremiah begins his lament by asking God how. That question, how. I think it's interesting. It's not why, it's how. And that's how we begin our laments as well. We ask God how. The book of Lamentations in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually not called Lamentations. It's called Icha. Say icha with me. Yeah, icha. It's a word that means how. Lamentations is actually called how. And Jeremiah begins Lamentations 1 by saying, How lonely lies the city. How like a widow she is. If you're familiar with some of David's laments in the Psalms, you'll recognize David saying, How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? Forever? How is a question that all of us are invited to ask in our lament journeys, and how is something we'd ask of someone who betrayed us, right? Like, how could you? How dare you? How are you going to show up and fix this? And believe it or not, God wants that kind of authenticity from us. To give you an idea of what's happening in the book of Lamentations, why Jeremiah is saying such awful things about God being his enemy and breaking his bones, 
God called Jeremiah to minister to the Israelite people as a prophet to warn them to repent from their sin and their idolatry. They had begun worshiping other gods, bringing those gods into God's temple. And so Jeremiah warned them again and again and again, repent, return, repent, return. God is so compassionate and patient. Repent, return, repent, return. But they didn't listen. And so God handed them over to the Babylonian Empire They ridiculed Jeremiah first. They kidnapped him. They threatened to kill him. Like his ministry was not, you know, dotted with open doors and smooth sailing. Like it was a rough ministry for him. God eventually handed them over to the Babylonians. And the siege of Jerusalem lasted about two years. By month four, the Israelite people were out of food. Jeremiah infers later that they began to think about cannibalism because things were so bad. The Babylonian army ravaged the women, set fire to the temple, broke through the city walls of Zion. Eventually, many of the Israelite people were forced to live as exiles in Babylon. It was an atrocious situation happening. And that's why Jeremiah is saying, I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. And beyond the living nightmare, there was a question of their identity as God's people. Because if God loved them, if he had truly covenanted himself to them, how in the world could he let this happen? God, how could you? Now, I don't mean to compare our personal pain to the atrocities that the Israelite people were going through. But I think the reality is, is all of us, as we're witnessing the pain of the world around us, or as we're dealing with some really difficult things in our own lives, we're grieving, we're suffering, we're hurting, we're questioning, we're asking some of those same questions as well. God, if you really love me, if you're really who you say you are, what are you doing here? This is actually to me, I think, one of the most beautiful invitations in our relationship with God is that we are allowed to ask him all of those hows without fear that he's going to reject us. In my season of 2015, I grabbed a journal. I would encourage you to do this too on your phone or or an actual physical journal. I wrote the word ika on it, how. And I just began asking God all of my how questions, and not just individually, but collectively, my family's how questions. God, how are you going to make my kids okay during this season? God, how are you going to make my marriage okay in this season? For my family who's hurting God, how is this going to be okay? Of course, when you're suffering, you're mindful of the suffering of other people around you. So I was lamenting for other people around the world who were hurting. But one of the big questions of my lament on behalf of my family was on behalf of my aunt, Cameron's mom. Because she didn't just lose her son, she lost the dream of grandchildren. And any of you who have lost someone, you know it's not just the loss itself, which is gut-wrenching, it's the loss of the dreams, right? God, how are you going to show up in this? this loss of grandkids. Can I tell you a crazy story? It's really crazy. And it's a little bit vulnerable and it's a little bit messy, so I'm going to trust you with it, okay? A little bit after Cameron's funeral, a woman knocked on my aunt and uncle's door. She's holding the hand of a son who looks exactly like Cameron. And she's very, very pregnant. And she said to my aunt and uncle, I don't know how to say this to you, but these are your grandkids. Now, it's messy, 
right? Why are there secret kids? I don't know what Cameron's doing. There's some type of sin there. I mean, it's a mess. And yet, those two boys call my aunt and uncle Nana and Papa. Those two boys just spent the summer with me and my kids calling me Auntie Aubrey. And look, it's wild. It's messy. It's bewildering. And yet all we can do is like fall to our knees and say, God, who are humans that you're mindful of us? Like only you could write such a narrative that in the middle of our deepest, deepest lament and grief, you're going to show up with the gift of these two little kids? Okay, God, we worship you. We can't explain it, but we worship you. We are invited to pour out our hearts to God, to ask God our house, and just watch as he does what only he can do. Now, sometimes it's not going to be until we see Jesus face to face. There aren't always going to be two little boys that show up at the front door. But just that act of beginning to surrender our house to God is a massive step towards healing in our lament journeys. Again, I would encourage you, begin asking God your house, both individually and collectively for the world as well. Just watch what God does. The next thing that Jeremiah does, he moves from his house to these really, really painful comments about God. And he moves to another place. I'm going to get technical with you for just a minute if you'll bear with me. But I want you to see the structure of Lamentations here on the screen. So Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote five different poems. They're all united thematically, but they are individual. And you'll notice that uh, poem one, poem two, chapter one, chapter two, chapter four, chapter five are 22 verses. It's because there's 22 verses in the Hebrew alphabet. And in one, two, and four, Jeremiah walks through kind of a successive like line by line, uh, line of poem with the Hebrew alphabet, okay? Verse five, he does something different. But you'll notice, or, sorry, chapter five, you'll notice in chapter three, immediately, there's something unique about that poem, right? Jeremiah walks through the Hebrew alphabet three times, a triplicate walk. There's a number of reasons he does that. But part of the reason that Jeremiah is doing that is for us to go, oh, there's something here to pay attention to, right? Jeremiah is saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. This is the climax of what I'm doing here. Lamentations chapter 3, let's read, starting in verse 19. I think this is what Jeremiah is drawing our attention to. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. Jeremiah hammers his lament into the ground with that teeny tiny word, yet. Although everything around me is falling apart, Although my loved ones, my people, my community are hurting, although God isn't acting on Lombardi time yet, I dare to hope. Why? Because of the Lord's great love. Because of the Lord's compassion. Because of the Lord's faithfulness. Yet is really the, the fighter's prize of faith. Right? Yet says, okay, 
God may never heal my best friend from that disease she's suffering with. God may never answer my prayers about my kids. God may never make my financial situation better. God may never improve my circumstances, yet I am not going to walk away from the God who has been faithful to me. This is deep, mature faith, Christ Church. Yet believes that even if it does not go well with you, even if everything is stripped away, Jesus is enough. And therefore, we will not walk away. Our hope as Christians, and I think this is where we can get a little mixed up, because, you know, we do, we have a good God, right? He's a good Father. He loves to lavish his love on us. He loves to show off his abundance. But our hope is not in bonuses, Right? Our, our hope is not in benefits. Our hope is not in open doors or smooth sailing. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so in these seasons where it just seems like, God, what are you doing? These are the moments that the enemy is going to come to you and say, hey, walk away. God's not listening. God doesn't actually see what's going on in the world. God doesn't hear you. But these moments are an invitation for you to say, you know what? Even if he doesn't, I am not going to walk away from the God who has been faithful to me. I'm going to declare my yet because Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my prize. The yet that Jeremiah declares here, this is the same yet that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego declared in the fiery furnace to King Nebuchadnezzar. In the book of Daniel, you know, he's forcing them to bow down to his God, his idols. They say no. He throws them in the fiery furnace. We tell this story to kids, by the way. And they say, look, you can throw us in the fiery furnace. Our God is powerful enough to save us, yet even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. It's the same faith that Jesus had. Father, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not my will, but your will. This is deep mature faith, and this is the invitation to all of us in our suffering and in our grief. When all is stripped away, will we worship God for God's sake alone? Some of you, I know you're at a watershed moment in your faith. For some of you, you're like, ah, I don't know. I'm doubting it's been so long. I don't know if this, like, structure of my faith can hold up anymore. Or others of you, like, God is inviting you deeper and deeper, but it feels scary and it feels foggy. This is a moment, church, that God is asking you, inviting you by the power of his spirit to declare you are yet in him. Do not walk away from the God who loves you. So Jeremiah moves from asking his hows to declaring his yets, and then he does something really beautiful, and we'll wrap up with this. Starting in verse 55, Lamentations 3. Jeremiah says, I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called, and you said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Jeremiah is saying, God, you're with me. He's moving from asking his hows to declaring his yet, to remembering God's withness with him. When things are hard, when we're going through suffering, 
it's very natural to us, for us to ask that really age-old question, God, where are you? Where is God? I think many of us over the past several years, we've, we've known God is at work, but we're, if we're honest, we're kind of going, but God, what are you doing? Like, God, where are you? And it's okay for us to ask that question. That's a lament question, but in one sense, it's a wrong question because it assumes something false about God. It assumes that our God is distant from suffering. It assumes that our God is sort of a puppet master God, like pulling strings for his own entertainment, but that's not our God. Our God is an Emmanuel God. Our God is a with us God. And when all is falling apart, God's withness is with us. If you feel alone right now, you are not alone. If you wonder if God is hearing you, God hears you. If you wonder if God sees you in your suffering, God sees you. Psalm 34 says that God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is with you. Let me end with this story. So 2015, my, my season of lament, I, I'm writing my house down, faithfully surrendering them to God, sometimes screaming them at God. I'm asking the Holy Spirit, like, give me the strength to declare my yet. I don't want to walk away from God. But the other thing that was going on, and I have been a Christian for a really long time, was the first season of my life where I just did not sense God's presence. I just didn't. And it was heartbreaking. Like, I was like, Jesus, I miss you. Where are you? Like, what do you, I just, I could not access that elusive presence of God. And I thought I disappointed him. I thought I was doing something wrong. Like, God, where are you? And so I began to pray this very childlike prayer. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me again. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me again. Show me your withness because I, I need your presence or I don't have the strength to keep going here. In the middle of that season, a friend invited me to a girls' night out. It was a choir concert. It was another theater in the round experience, but I wasn't pregnant, so, and I wasn't having to go in a circle. But we went to this concert we sat down, and immediately all of the lights went down in the room. And then a screen like this descended from the ceiling. It flashed a trigger warning. And then on the screen, they began depicting these really disturbing images. Images of child soldiers, and images of hungry children, and images of hurting women. And it was really, really dark. And then... A choir walked up on a stage like this, and they were dressed in these dark robes, and they began singing this low, slow funeral dirge. And so you're in this room at a concert that I thought was going to be this fun girls' night out, and soon I'm kind of like, I don't know if I can stay here anymore. And I turn to my friend, and I'm like, I think I got to go. Like, life is too hard as it is. I don't need a reminder of all of this. What I didn't realize... It was, there was another choir in the room, but they were disguised as audience members, so they were seated all around us. And while these suffering images were being displayed and while this funeral choir was singing, this other choir stood up all around us, and they began singing this hopeful, joyful, triumphant song. And then they actually invited us to sing along with them. And so soon the whole room is filled with this song. Now here's the thing. The suffering images were still being displayed the whole time. The funeral choir was still singing. But the hopeful song was growing louder and louder and louder. And in the middle of that, I felt God finally answer my prayers. Aubrey, I'm with you. This is what I do. 
I am not ignoring the pain and suffering that you're in, and I am not ignoring the pain and suffering of this world, but I am at work singing a louder song over it. And it is a song of redemption. It is a song of renewal. It is a song of restoration. It is a song of new creation, and you're invited to sing along with me. And in that moment, I sat there bawling like a baby. Okay, God, I know you're with me. Okay, God, I know you're with sufferers. Sufferers. Tune my ears to your louder song. I don't know what you're facing today, but here is what I know. Jesus took the bitter cup of suffering for us. Jesus took all of our pain, all of our grief, all of our heartache on himself on the cross. Jesus became lament for us. And because of the death-defying, bondage-breaking, heart-healing, prisoner-emancipating, forgiveness-bringing, adoption-declaring, victory-winning, evil-overcoming, spirit-filling work of the cross, pain and suffering and heartache will never be the end of our stories. All of our laments, from Jeremiah's to Jesus's, to our laments even now are answered in the lament-ending love of Jesus who is at work, as Revelation 21 tells us, making all things new. One day, no more tears, no more suffering. But in in between, we are invited to cry out to God with our hows, to declare our yets, and to experience his withness with us. Let me pray. God, thank you that you invite us into a truly deep, intimate marriage relationship with you. Where God, when we're so tempted to walk away, you actually invite us near to speak openly and honestly with you about how hard and scary and difficult things are. Thank you that you're a God who is not afraid of that. You don't reject us for that. But God, you actually want that from us. And so, Lord, for your church now, would you strengthen us to be people who give you our house, who declare our yet's, and who experienced your witness because we are called by the wonderful name of Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.